So I'm one of the last people to give a Dharma talk on this retreat. And when I was in conversation with Dara earlier today, I mentioned that I had a little bit of a sense of something missing. And when I sat with that feeling a bit more, I realized that it felt a bit strange to be this far into a retreat and not to have introduced myself a bit more fully. Now, it's true that back on opening night we, of part two, we uh, each of us briefly introduced ourselves. But in New Zealand, where I grew up, it's traditional in native Maori culture that before you speak to a group, you introduce yourself in quite a specific way. You name your ancestral lineage, your people, and you name aspects of the land where you live that you feel a sense of connection with in terms of your mountain and your river. And this form of introduction is known as a pepeha, and it's done to help build connections between people, to create, with the intention of creating more ability to listen and to hear each other. Because if people don't know your background, they don't know where you're coming from. They don't know where you're coming from literally or metaphorically. And this tradition of introducing oneself in that form, it's done by non-Maori New Zealanders too. So I thought in that same spirit of connection, I could just tell you uh, my people are from Manchester in England. My Dharma people are from here. They're from in Auckland in New Zealand and from Newcastle in New South Wales. My mountain is Mount Manaya in the north of New Zealand. And I think of my river as being the Pacific Ocean because it's that water that connects Australia, New Zealand, and the west coast of the US, these different places that I teach. So as you just heard, I teach in uh, different communities. And in some of those communities, people want to understand where I'm coming from in a slightly different way in terms of social location. Perhaps it's not quite as poetic as a pepeha, but I can also name where I'm coming from in that way in terms of I'm white, heterosexual, female. I was born in the UK. I was brought up in New Zealand. And my parents and ancestors are from the north of England. And just as a footnote, my British accent is not upper class. I've noticed that a lot of US people think that any British accent is upper class. So I just want to be clear, my family is not wealthy. And for the last six years, I've technically been homeless, traveling wherever I'm invited to teach and living from Dana. And in this diversity of cute communities that I teach, in some contexts, what I've just done would have been seen as way too much information. In some monastic traditions, when people are speaking, they speak from behind a fan with the intention of releasing the sort of the personality so that the Dharma can be heard more clearly. So whether you agree with any of those different approaches to um, speaking and listening, perhaps you can appreciate the intention, which is to support 
deeper listening and hopefully to support more full engagement with the Dharma. Or as Brian said the other night, to celebrate the Dharma. When we listen to a Dharma talk, we can think of it as celebrating the Dharma. So, formalities are out of the way. Since arriving here about a week ago, I've been and joining all of you on this great adventure that we call a retreat, I've been sort of mulling over what could I talk about, what theme could I explore that would be relevant for as many of you as possible. Those of you who've been here for six weeks already and those of you who are more recently joined in. So if we look at it in that way, it might seem that we're at different stages of this journey. But even if we'd all started out at the same time, we'd very soon be finding ourselves exploring different terrain. Because each of us is unique and each of us is walking our own journey, our own journey through the ever-changing terrain of our hearts and minds. So metaphorically, it can seem like uh, some of us might feel that we're high up along a mountain ridge. Some of us might feel more like we're slogging through the jungle. Some of us may be strolling along the beach. Some of us are wading through swampland. And maybe some of us are still trying to get out of the suburbs. (laughs) No matter where you are on this journey, this metaphorical journey, no matter what state you feel to be in right now, I think there's one quality that's always going to be useful for this journey, and that's the quality of courage. Courage or fearlessness, as it's more often referred to in the Buddhist Buddhist traditions. I'm going to use the words courage and fearlessness interchangeably tonight, but I like to use both words because they have slightly different uh, connotations, different aspects. Courage has its roots in the Latin word for heart, which is core. And apparently one of the word courage's earliest meanings was to speak one's mind by telling all one's heart. So this word courage has a long association with the heart and a strong connection with love, which I'll come back to later. I also like to use the word fearless because it points very directly to the truth that fearlessness, fearlessness comes about through transcending fear. Before we can know fearlessness, we first have to know and become intimate with our own fear. And right there is the problem because fear is a profoundly, even primally, unpleasant and challenging experience. It's possible that even right now some of you might be experiencing ripples of anxiety just hearing the word fearlessness. I know sometimes when I hear talks like this part of me is going, "Mm, that's not me, that's not who I am, no I'm I'm not brave, Uh, uh, courage, Uh, can I go home now please? So there can be those little voices of kind of quaking or quavering, even at the thought of being invited to be brave. 
So I just want to say that I'm pretty confident that every one of you here has courage, perhaps more than you can acknowledge or recognize. But I'd like to invite you actually to reflect on that. To reflect even just on the process that you went through to get yourselves here recently if you came for part two, or if you've been here for part one, the courage that it's taken not just to get yourself here, but to stay here over these six weeks. So just to offer a couple of moments of silence to see if you can sense into some of those hurdles, those challenges, those things you had to rise to meet to get yourself here and to stay here. Just a minute to see if you can find those. Of course, I don't know the circumstances of your lives, but I'm guessing that you had to have some courage perhaps to overcome financial challenges, different kinds of practical issues that come from having to put aside all of your responsibilities, the courage that it takes to leave behind friends and family, perhaps to travel long distances, to arrive in a new and unfamiliar place, and then each day, the courage just to keep showing up for whatever presents itself. So I like to do this practice of turning towards recognizing and acknowledging good qualities because that's what helps them to strengthen and to grow. And this encouragement, the word encouragement has within it, courage. So that's Part of what I hope to do here is to encourage this uh, recognition of courage, to bring it front and center so that it can be a resource for our journey. And this journey that we're undertaking together is a journey through the Four Noble Truths, which is really at the heart of the Buddha's teachings. Winnie gave a a brief run-through on opening night, and I'll give a second brief run-through just to give us some context of what we're doing here. So this first noble truth that starts with just the simple acknowledgement that there is suffering or stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha, to use the Pali word. So there is suffering. And even just in that acknowledgement, again, there might be a little flicker of fear because suffering hurts. There's a very instinctive tendency to move away from it. And so again, right there, we need to train in willingness to meet and overcome our fear of suffering. Because if we can't do that, we're not going to be able to progress to the next noble truth. We're just going to stay stuck in our unconscious reactivity to dukkha and never get beyond it. 
So the second noble truth is that there is a cause of dukkha and that cause is craving. And the energy of craving also includes the energy of not wanting, of resisting, of pushing away, of ignoring, of denying, of fearing. So again, we need to look at our relationship to dukkha so that we can release the clinging and the resisting and the fearing. And when we can let go of that craving, we experience very directly the third noble truth, the truth that suffering can be cured, craving can be released, and we can taste nibbana, freedom for ourselves. We're probably going to be giving a few more talks on these topics. So for now, just to acknowledge, I'm giving you a very quick sketch, a road map, a mud map of the terrain. So again, the third noble truth is that we can free ourselves from suffering. And to do that, we need to stop clinging, right? Just let go. Sounds very easy, but as I'm sure you all know, much harder to actually put into practice, to do. So the Buddha gave us a prescription, a path. The fourth noble truth is this prescription of how to explore, examine, and train ourselves in every aspect of our life so that we can experience the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. So the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. That's the list of factors that are usually prefaced by the word right, so right view, right intention, and so on. These days, some translators use words such as wise or appropriate rather than right, perhaps because it might sound a little less binary. So just as a very quick reminder, the eight path factors are right, wise, or appropriate view thought or intention, action, speech, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And of that list of the eight factors, the one that's most relevant for my talk tonight is probably the one on right or wise effort. Because this effort is twofold. On the one hand, it's about releasing afflictive mind states, mental qualities such as anger, hatred, and fear, learning how to release those qualities so that on the other hand, we can make room for skillful mind states, mental qualities such as generosity and kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, ease, peace, and so on. So the emphasis on right effort is uh, transforming our mind states from afflictive to skillful. And in order to do that, first we need to know what our mind states are. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, we have the third and fourth foundations of mindfulness, Mindfulness of the mind is the invitation to look very directly, as we started to do this morning in the instructions, to look at the mind itself and to begin to recognize whether the mind is affected by greed, by hatred, by ignorance, 
or not. So these three afflictive states are also sometimes translated as compulsion, aversion, and delusion. And we're also instructed to know if the mind is contracted and if it's narrow. And when we're in the grip of fear, that's usually when the mind does feel contracted, does feel narrow. The body and the mind tighten and tense and shrink and resist. So in the third foundation of mindfulness, we're asked to recognize when these afflictive states are present and when they're absent. So as I said earlier, fear is... um, It appears also as one of the five classical hindrances, which again we'll be going into in more detail soon. But for now, just to mention, the second one is ill will or aversion. And this term aversion is shorthand for all forms of resistance, of pulling away, of withdrawing, of shutting down. So it includes fear as well as anger. And the good news is that with training, this practice of paying attention to the mind does help us to release deeper and deeper and deeper levels of fear until we come closer to the Buddha's living example of complete fearlessness. So in the suttas, the discourses, the Buddha is described as someone who's completely transcended fear. Those of you who are familiar with the story of his life, you will have heard that he was often insulted, he was attacked, he was uh, even, uh, his cousin apparently tried to kill him a couple of times. And in one powerful story, the Buddha deliberately goes in search of a mass murderer by the name of Angulimala. And as he's going to look for Angulimala, Various people say, you know, don't do that. Don't go there. This guy is on the lookout for his next victim. But the Buddha has absolutely no fear. And when he goes to meet Angulimala, I like to think that it's that fearlessness that stops Angulimala in his tracks. It literally stops him and it turns him around because he goes on to become a monk and then apparently an arahant someone who is very close to Buddhahood. And I like that story of Angulimala because it illustrates that no matter what terrible people we might believe ourselves to be, it's still possible to progress very far along this path to freedom. And even if we think of ourselves perhaps as timid people or not so courageous, or perhaps we're in one of those phases of the practice where a lot of fear is coming up. Perhaps we can feel encouraged by the fact that there are tools we can use in this path to help work with that fear. Remembering the training slogan, if it's in the way, it is the way. Instead of waiting for the fear to go away so that then we can do our practice, we're invited to fold that very fear directly into our awareness. So there's uh, one teacher who I really appreciate for her teachings in relation to this kind of fearlessness, and that's the Zen priest, Zenju Earthlin Manuel. 
Some of you might be familiar with her book, The Way of Tenderness, where she uses her experiences as a lesbian black woman to explore race and sexuality and gender and those issues within the Dharma. So she says, many of us are afraid of fear and afraid of admitting even to ourselves that we feel it. We push back the visceral body experience of fear so effectively we think we've eliminated the fear itself. However, if we look around or within, we find that fear is often hidden and masked. The person who appears to be the center of the party might well be a person who fears her own invisibility or rejection. Perhaps the person who conducts eloquent presentations at the workplace is in fact afraid of losing his job. The person that espouses to be an ally may be conquering some kind of fear within. The longer we mask our fear, the more we experience the terror of our inauthenticity, perhaps creating chronic anxiety and despair. An ongoing red alert sounds off in response to threats that the terror we mask might be exposed. We might even say that the terror, as in the outer world, can become systemic within us. We become our own terrorist. We might try many strategies to eliminate this feeling of terror by rearranging our external lives, like furniture in our house. If I just change the way I look, I'll be less afraid. If I had more money, I'd be able to... uh, be less afraid. If I lived in a particular city or neighborhood, I'd be less afraid. But all of these strategies are bound to fail. At some point, we need to confront the terror from within. So the language that Zenju Eslin Manuel is using here is, is strong, maybe even confronting, like the Buddha in the First Noble Truth, just telling it like it is. There is suffering, there is terror. And if we want to be truly free, that fear has to be overcome. And we do need to take care with how we go about that process. Because the word fear covers a whole range of different levels of intensity from you know, fairly minor an- anxieties all the way through to pretty deep-rooted trauma. And many of these fears exist for a reason. Sometimes those reasons are no longer present, but sometimes they may still be realistic fears. So we need wisdom to help us discern. Is this a fear that is worth listening to? Or is it an old habit that I might experiment with letting go of. And with practice, we learn to distinguish between wise fear and a more habitual reflex that perhaps is based on distorted or outdated perceptions of ourselves and others. So we want to develop a wise relationship to fear, to respect it and to understand what it's trying to tell us. And this is extremely important if the fear that's coming up is in the terrain of trauma, because then we need to approach it with great care, not to try to 
annihilate it, but to gradually befriend it. And I emphasize the word gradually here because sometimes uh, I meet people and I've maybe been guilty of this myself, of coming on retreat with an agenda. So people will sometimes tell me they're planning to blast through their deepest, darkest trauma, preferably within the next couple of days. And they don't necessarily recognize that there's a kind of a violence in that agenda. So approaching our fear in uh, ways that are not so violent is really the aim here. And so tonight I'm giving some kind of more general suggestions, but you may want to check out some of what I'm saying with your individual practice meeting teachers if anything is not clear or if you have any concerns. So on retreat, we have the, a powerful opportunity to train in working with smaller and less intense fears in this service of doing things gradually. It's a bit like if we want to get fit, it's much better for our bodies if we do a little bit each day, slowly build up our muscles, slowly build up our stamina, so that eventually we can run that half marathon or lift that huge weight or climb that mountain. So this gradual training starts with the invitation, as I mentioned this morning, to meet our experience, whatever it is, with this attitude of kind curiosity. Kind curiosity, you know, though, is not the way we usually meet our fears. It's more usual that we try to avoid or ignore or deny, repress, disown or judge our fears. But this invitation to meet our fears with kind curiosity is a way of getting to know them better so that they can be helped to release. So curiosity is a powerful resource in this process. And recently uh, Dawn introduced me to the work of an Irish poet and theologian that I hadn't heard of before. His name is... I probably won't pronounce it. I know there's somebody Irish here, so please forgive my mangling of the language. But it's something like Padraig O'Tuama. And this, uh, he's a gay man who has worked with uh, groups in conflict in Ireland and Britain, the US and Australia. And his uh, seems to be his life's mission to help heal conflicts. And since 2014, he's been part of Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organization. And so as a gay man living in a society divided by sectarianism, he's written a lot about pain and fear. And I could feel the sort of courage that was um, being distilled in his poetry. So I was interested to hear that he also tries to meet these challenges with curiosity. But as he says in Irish, we don't have a direct word for curiosity. So you say, he gives a Gaelic word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. He gives this Gaelic word which he says means to wonder watch, to watch with a sense of wonder. He says curiosity can sometimes make it seem like you're nosy, but to wonder watch, I'm really interested in what it means to watch with wonder. Not only times when something is beautiful, but also when an argument is happening. 
How can we observe with wonder? Argument deserves our wonder, as does pain. Because try as we do, we sometimes hurt each other. Sometimes the hurt is deliberate, but even when we're trying not to, we often do. So how can we bring this quality of wonder even when what we're observing might be painful or fear-inducing? Can we really bring as much wonder to our own anxieties and fears as we might to the changing colors of a sunset or the mosaic of fallen leaves on the forest floor or the taste of freshly baked brownies? Can we really meet those fears with the same sense of interest and curiosity. And as I was contemplating this, I noticed that uh, Padraig's writing talks about collective processes and practices, things that we do together as a community. And this makes sense because there's an old saying, something like, a trouble shared is a trouble halved. And we can think of a fear shared as a fear halved. So this poet writes about the process of sharing our pain and our fear much uh, more eloquently than I can. So I'll share just a short part of an essay he wrote about prayer, which in Latin is oremus. So let us pick up the stones over which we stumble, friends, and build altars. Let us listen to the sound of breath in our bodies. Let us listen to the sounds of our own voices, of our own names, of our own fears. Let us name the harsh light and soft darkness that surround us. Let's claw ourselves out from the graves we've dug. Let's lick the earth from our fingers. Let us look up and out and around. The world is big and wide and wild and wonderful and wicked, and our lives are murky, magnificent, malleable, and full of meaning. Oremus, let us pray. Or you could say, let us meditate together. Because what kind curiosity and wonder-watching have in common is that they're both a form of befriending. We want to try to befriend our fears, to get to know them, to recognize how they show up for us, to listen to the stories that they're trying to tell us, but not to believe those stories fully. Because as we get to know them better, we might see that those stories are just stories. They're constructs that we tell ourselves, sometimes compulsively. So as Rebecca mentioned the other night, we can keep coming back to sense-based reality. And that experience of staying present to the body and the senses with bare awareness can help us know, okay, it's just unpleasant experience. Hollowness in the belly feels like this. Tightening of the chest feels like this. A deep breath out feels like this. 
The sitting bone supported by the cushion feels like this. Recognizing a bit more stability feels like this. So this practice of bare awareness helps to take us out of the story where often we unconsciously enhance our fear by creating a narrative that makes it bigger than it really needs to be. So a few years ago I was assisting, <coughs> I was assisting James Barras with a retreat near Melbourne in Australia and we were in a group meeting. One of the participants was sharing how she was experiencing a lot of difficult, strong emotions, including fear. She was crying quite a lot as she was describing this. And I heard her say something like, every time I sit down to meditate, the Italians just keep coming. Italians and Italians and Italians. And I was a bit puzzled because I knew that there, there are quite a lot of Italians in Melbourne, but I wasn't clear why she was experiencing so much fear about them. So finally, I, I asked her, you know, could you say a bit more about why you're so afraid of Italians? And she looked at me in shock and said, not Italians, battalions. The battalions keep coming. <laughs> and the whole group just burst out laughing, including the woman. And she told me later that this was a turning point in her relationship to that particular fear. Because <laughs> before, when she would sit down and she'd think, the battalions are coming, she'd think, oh, the Italians are coming. <laughs> and she'd think about pasta and great restaurants and beautiful landscapes and the musicality of the Italian language, and she would just smile. <laughs> so it definitely helps to have humor with fear. And again, that's easier said than done. Most of us need some help, some training to get to that point. So as I said earlier, we have an opportunity on this retreat to begin in training and meeting small fears and to, to perhaps give a, an actual example of how we might do this in practice. I'd like to use a real example from a retreat I taught in Australia a couple of years ago. Uh, but before we go there, just a trigger warning. If you have a fear of spiders, if you have any kind of arachnophobia, you might just want to block your ears for a few minutes. <laughs> or you could experiment with touching into that fear just a little bit. So as some of you might know, Australia is a country that, in my perception, has more than its fair share of fear-inducing creatures including some pretty big spiders. And in some of the places I teach, there's a, a spider known as the huntsman that likes to come inside and get comfortable. And this spider grows, it's about 8 to 10 inches across, 20 to 25 <laughs> centimeters. So just to get a sense of that, it's big enough that if you were to try and take care of it with a mason jar, a preserving jar, you would have to sort of wiggle the jar around to encourage it to get its legs in so you don't chop its legs off as you're trying to escort it outside. So I was teaching a nine-day retreat at a center a few hours west of Sydney, and I got this note from a yogi. She said, there is a spider in the women's toilet near the door. I find myself not wanting to enter the toilet. 
How do I train myself not to exaggerate the fear that I have and even better help the spider and I to live in harmony without fear? Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. (laughs) So in some ways it was perfect that this spider had taken up residence in the corner of the women's bathroom because it was there for quite some time. And it meant that the woman who wrote the note had this opportunity to practice working with her fear of the spider over several days. And I'm going to share some of the suggestions that I gave her for working with fear. And although I'm using the spider, the spider as the object of her fear, you might like to substitute for the spider a small fear of your own, if you can have one that might suit so that you can interpret these suggestions metaphorically and make them relevant to your own actual fears. So working with spider fear day one, make a resolution to yourself that expresses your intention to begin meeting this fear. For example, may I be willing to acknowledge this spider fear, meet it with kind curiosity, and help it to release for the benefit of all beings. Then go and stand just in the doorway of the bathroom, as far away from the spider as possible, but in a place where you can see it and there's no chance of it jumping on you. As you stand there, you might notice racing thoughts in the mind. Spiders are horrible, creepy, disgusting, dangerous, What if it bites me? What if it's poisonous? What if I have to go to hospital? What if they don't have the right anti-venom? And what if I die? Try taking your attention away from those thoughts and bring your awareness into the body. Notice any physical sensations that might be present, perhaps trembling in the arms or legs or clamminess in the hands, tightening in the chest, or a sudden urge to run. After just a few seconds of staying present with these physical sensations, then stop and literally or metaphorically bow. Leave the bathroom and go for a walk outside in nature, somewhere where you can feel safe and at ease, somewhere that's pleasant and soothing, perhaps under the apple trees or down by the garden Buddha. Don't go back to that bathroom for the rest of the day and do your best to not think about the spider at all. Day two, return to the bathroom and this time take a step a little bit closer to the spider. Then another step to where you can see the spider more clearly but it's still not able to jump on you. As you get closer to the spider, you might notice a bit more reactivity. You may put a hand on your heart as a reminder to steady and calm yourself. You might run through some compassion phrases as a reminder not to close down. I'm aware of this fear. I care about this fear. May this fear release and may I know peace. So as you orient to compassion, you might even imagine yourself as Kuan Yin, the archetype of compassion, 
who's also known as she who hears the cries of the world. And we have some beautiful Kuan Yin images here in the hall and out there in the walking room. So as you channel the compassion of Kuan Yin, you might see if there's then more willingness to get even more interested in the spider. You might crouch down and look at it a little more closely. How many eyes does this spider have? Eight, actually. How hairy are its legs? Extremely. How much does it look like a big furry crab? A lot. As you pay attention to the spider, keep noticing what's happening in your own body. If any time the fear starts to get more intense, then back away or stop doing this practice altogether until you feel more stable. On the other hand, if you are able to feel just a little bit less anxious and a little bit more kind and curious, you might try sending the spider some metta. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you know peace. You might wonder if or how a spider feels happiness, but you do know for sure that it wants to stay alive, just like you. So you have at least that much in common. And if you are able to feel a flicker of metta for the spider, you might try moving just a little bit closer. And so you might play with this moving toward, noticing any response, becoming closer and closer. And then when you've had enough, take a moment just to appreciate your own courage, your willingness to face that fear, and your wish, your intention to offer kindness to the spider. So as you keep repeating this practice, you might find that over time your capacity to be with spider and spider fear gets stronger and stronger, even to the point where you might feel grateful to the spider for helping you to strengthen these qualities of kindness and compassion and courage. So that's just one possibility, one possible way of exploring fear. And I want to highlight that in there, I recommended several times taking what I call a strategic withdrawal. And this strategic withdrawal is not cheating, as people sometimes think. It's actually an act of wisdom and compassion to turn away from the fear when necessary and to do whatever we can to come back to balance. So in context of a retreat, if we're finding that we're getting overwhelmed, it might mean that we change tack and go and do some walking meditation or go for a walk outside. It might mean having a cup of tea or taking a hot shower, maybe taking a nap and resting. Or if the fear is really intense, we can pick up the red phone and call retreat support. All of these are what we call skillful means. And if we do them with awareness in the service of coming back to ease and balance of mind, then that's the wise and compassionate thing to do. 
So in all of this, what we're trying to find is this the famous middle way that the Buddha referred to all through his teachings. So on the one hand, we're not wanting to ignore or repress or deny or flee from fear. But on the other hand, we don't want to fall into it, get swamped by it or become paralyzed by it. So this again takes practice and Finding balance is done by knowing when we're off balance. So it's a bit like learning to ride a bike. In the beginning, we crash off to one side and then the other, and we experience some pretty wild wobbling. But as we develop more experience and skill in this process, the, my, the wobbles become more like micro wobbles. And even the most experienced bike rider is still making those micro wobbles in order to stay upright. So if you are at the stage where you feel like you're just crashing from one side to the other, please, I hope you can feel encouraged that if you stay with this process, over time it becomes less extreme and easier to be with. And I want to highlight that in line with Brian's talk last night, this work that we're doing here of releasing fear It has huge benefits, not only for ourselves, but for others as well. In many communities, many countries around the world, there seems to be this escalating sense of fear, and it can be contagious. The more we can train in overcoming our own fears, then the more we can contribute to an overall reduction of fear and a consequent increase in courage. So Pema Chodron, who many of you know of, or maybe know, she's one of my favorite go-to teachers for anything to do with fear. And a few years ago, she wrote about this bodhisattva aspect of working with fear. She says, when we look at the world around us, our immediate world and the bigger world beyond, we see a lot of difficulty and dysfunction. The news we hear is mostly bad news and that makes us afraid. It can be quite discouraging. Yet we could actually derive inspiration for our warriorship, for our bodhisattva path from these dire circumstances. We could recognize the fact and proclaim the fact that we are needed Who are we? You and me and every one of us. Each of us on this earth is needed at this time. Why are we needed and and in what way are we needed? We're needed because there are hundreds of thousands of billions of beings who are suffering. If even one small segment of us, one sub-community, took it upon themselves to live their lives in a way that helped their families, their neighborhoods, their towns, and indeed the earth itself, something good would begin to happen. So the good news is that although fear is contagious, so too is fearlessness. And this provides us with yet another strategy for dealing with our own fears, especially on retreat. For myself at those times when I've been in difficult terrain, uh, 
when we feel we're coming up against some kind of edge in our practice, some challenge, it can be helpful to bring to mind people who have walked the same path before us. So at those times, as I said in my own practice, when things were feeling more challenging, ungrounded and destabilizing, I would consciously bring to mind some of my teachers and other role models that I was pretty sure had been through similar terrain and come out the other side and, as far as I could tell, pretty good shape. And it was so helpful at those times to be able to bring to mind actual living beings that I knew, teachers, monastics, mentors, dharma friends, people who embodied a quality of courage to some degree. I could visualize them walking ahead of me or alongside me or at my back, just encouraging me to keep going. And it gave me a kind of a borrowed courage with which to keep practicing. And these living examples or role models, they don't have to be perfect, you could say, paragons of fearlessness. At times, our fellow yogis, our co-meditators, can offer that same inspiration. So on the first ever Vipassana retreat I did, it was in Thailand quite a few years ago now. And I was assigned to chopping veggies with a team of some other yogis. And back then I was pretty new to practice and I was new to retreat culture. And I was also pretty clueless about mindfulness. So I soon got caught in old habits. And as I was chopping vegetables, I wanted to prove what a great veggie chopper I was by chopping my carrots with incredible speed. Unlike the woman opposite who was chopping her carrots with incredible mindfulness, And because I was clueless, I was feeling pretty pleased with myself at how quick I was chopping these carrots. And I completely missed that I was getting caught in comparing mind and ego and missing the whole mindfulness piece. But fortunately, on the last day of the retreat, I had an opportunity to talk to this woman. I won't go into too much detail, but she told me that on her first retreat at that center, I... Uh, 10 or so years earlier, she had taken that opportunity to go cold turkey from a drug addiction. And she told me about sitting for hours in this kind of limbo between living and dying with this battle raging between, on the one hand, the desire to get more drugs and on the other, the desire to live. And after many hours of this battle, Eventually, the desire to live won out. And she went back to her home country, stayed clean and studied and is, was studying ways to treat drug addiction so that she could help other people. And when I heard this story, my pride at being able to chop carrots quickly got a little bit deflated. <laughs> And I still think of her sometimes because I have thought that I was doing it tough on that retreat, my first Vipassana retreat. So I couldn't imagine what it would be like doing it with that kind of other challenge going on at the same time. And perhaps some of you have had similar experiences or you know people who do and you can have a sense of just how much courage it takes to deal with some of those challenges. So our 
inspirations don't have to be um, teachers. They can be people around us. And who knows, you yourself might be an inspiration for someone around you. So as we keep persevering with this work of freeing the heart and mind from fear, what starts to happen is that a kind of space opens up in the heart and the mind. As the tightness and the contraction of self-protection soften and release, it feels like there's more room in the heart-mind for skillful states to begin to emerge and to strengthen. We start to experience more empathy, more generosity, more kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. These last are the four Brahma-Vihara states that some of you will recognize. These are four skillful qualities that we can cultivate very directly through meditation practice. And they're also the natural expression of the heart-mind that is free from fear. So there's a direct relationship between fear and love. And this relationship is expressed very simply and clearly in one of my favorite poems by the Australian poet and cartoonist Michael Lunig. He says, there are only two feelings, love and fear. There are only two languages, love and fear. There are only two activities, love and fear. There are only two motives, two procedures, two frameworks, two results, love and fear, love and fear. So you could see this poem as being another way of uh, expressing right effort that shift from releasing unskillful mental states into strengthening and perfecting skillful mental states. It's the movement from fear to love. And in some ways it is that simple. In any moment of our lives, in any moment on this retreat, we have a choice about which way we want to orient. And courage is the heart quality that helps us to pivot from fear to love. And even if we don't think of ourselves as naturally courageous, we're fortunate to have these practices that can help us develop and train in these qualities. And every one of us here is doing exactly that. So I'd like to encourage all of us to keep going, not just for ourselves, but because the world needs us to do this work too. So to close, I'd like to come back to Pema Chodron because she has explored this terrain of fear so thoroughly. And for me, at least, she articulates the process of navigating it so clearly. She says, it's not easy to do, but fortunately we have a method that can help us discover the courage to smile at fear. Meditation practice is a method for being with ourselves fully and completely, allowing the time and space to see it all with gentleness, kindness, and dead honesty. 
It is the safest environment within which to undertake this mission impossible. And when meditation practice has helped us to be honest and courageous enough to know ourselves in a deep way, we can begin to extend out and help others. Because the things outside of us that appear threatening seen that way because of the fear within, the fear we have been reluctant to look at, the things that unnerve us, that trigger feelings of inadequacy, that make us feel that we can't handle it, that we're not good enough, they lose their power over us when we learn to smile at fear. While fearlessness may be our goal, so to speak, The basis of fearlessness is knowing fear and that knowing takes place over and over again. Fearlessness and the compassion that arises from it are not solid and permanent. They emerge when your fears are triggered. If you touch the fear instead of running from it, you find tenderness, vulnerability and sometimes a sense of sadness. This tender-heartedness happens naturally when you start to be brave enough to stay present. Because instead of armoring yourself, instead of turning to anger, self-denigration and iron-heartedness, you keep your eyes open. Then you begin to see the blueness of an iris, the wetness of water, the movement of the wind, Becoming more in touch with ourselves gives birth to enormous appreciation for the world and for other people. It can sound corny, but you feel grateful for the beauty of the world. Your heart is filled with gratitude, appreciation, compassion, and caring for other people. And it all comes from touching that shakiness within and being willing to be present with it. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment.